dear friends, and welcome uh, to Voices of the Sacred Feminine, broadcasting across the globe for uh, just about 10 years now, discussing sex, power, politics, religion, uh, all those things that I was told as a young girl growing up in the South that uh, nice girls shouldn't bother their pretty little heads with. (laughs) Yep, uh, that's what they taught us down in Louisiana, and uh, I'm not sure who that served. Certainly it wasn't me or the women that uh, I grew up with, but uh, we've we've gotten smart. We've gotten a clue now, and uh, we're all starting to take responsibility for our own education. And uh, even more than that, we're taking responsibility for creating a new normal out there in the world. And I hope I'm uh, doing just a small part uh, by um, having this show on the air uh, for the last decade uh, where men and women come together and talk about the uh, sacred feminine, whether it be deity, archetype, or ideals that will help change the world. And tonight, um, I'm very happy to have two wonderful guests. Um, but before I tell you about them, uh, just a thank you goes out to Abigail Spinner McBride. And you heard a little snippet from her song, Arms of the Mother. Uh, if I have time at the end of the show, I will uh, play that uh, song in its entirety. So thank you, Abigail, uh, for use of your music. I try to get uh, pieces that uh, sort of speak to the sacred feminine uh, in one way uh, or another. But uh, tonight's guests, uh, I have two guests tonight. Uh, for a while, I had been having only uh, having only one, but uh, tonight we do have two. And uh, my first guest is uh, Danica Anderson. Uh, She's a a Ph.D. and forensic psychotherapist. Uh, She's going to be discussing her new book, uh, Blood and Honey, Secret History of Women, uh, South Slavic Women's Experiences in a World of Modern-Day Territorial Warfare. Uh, We're going to delve into topics such as the narratives of Bosnian women, war crimes, and war survivor narratives, uh, including her mother's concentration camp survivorship of World War II. Uh, Danica will share how the Balkan War changed standards, uh, making rape a weapon of war, along with how the silencing of women and the violence they endured also silenced reverence for Mother Earth. Uh, We'll learn about the Slavic round dance called the Kolo, danced in these conflict zones by women as they keep alive deeply embedded biological processes supporting the manifesting of female social collectives, inclusive of men, and remembering the children. Then second up, uh, I'm glad to uh, have uh, added to the program tonight uh, Reverend, uh, Venerable Reverend uh, Patrick McCullum. He's an internationally recognized spiritual leader uh, who's worked toward human rights, social justice, and equality for all religions and spiritual traditions, uh, sort of uh, transcends cultural, religious, and political barriers. Uh, Patrick uh, was at the Council for the Parliament of World Religions with me uh, this past weekend, uh, as were thousands of other folks um, from uh, probably 50 to 80 different religions and spiritualities across the globe. It's probably one of the biggest interfaith gatherings uh, on the face of the earth. Uh, We're going to chat about uh, how powerful um, and amazing that was. But uh, but more than that, uh, we're going to talk about uh, his work with um, uh, Jane uh, Goodall and uh, the World Peace 
file in. Uh, he's been on the show talking to us about that, but there's a new development uh, about the World Peace Violin, and um, it's interesting because, uh, as Patrick told us on a previous show, there's some mystery and magic attached to that uh, because uh, it was cre- he created it, um, actually built it, crafted it uh, from guidance from goddess which um, is really pretty incredible. So uh, there's a wonderful story there. I'll ask him to retell it to bring everyone up to speed. So I think a very, very uh, rich show tonight, um, you know, talking about uh, important topics that um, we all must hear and I think we enjoy hearing and uh, uh, raise the vibration on the planet, uh, raise our awareness. And uh, we will start now uh, with Danica Anderson. Um, I want to say hello to Danica. Hi, Danica. Hello, Karen. I'm really glad to be here on your show. Well, thank you so much uh, for being here. I know you have such, uh, um, you know, you are you are a truth teller uh, of, um, you know, maybe things that some people would rather remain hidden. And um, you know that doesn't serve anyone but the uh, the predators and the uh, the perpetrators. And I, I'm so happy to have you here tonight, uh, telling you know the stories of uh, uh, you know of the women and, um, uh, and and talking about your new book, uh, Blood and Honey: Secret History of Women. So um, where would it make most sense to start, Danica, so that your you know, so that the thread of uh, of our interview tonight, um, uh, you know, goes in the most logical direction. Um, what would what do you want to share with listeners first? Um, perhaps how I came to write this book, and it took me about sixteen years. But um, I think that you know, if we do it somewhat from the source, and then how it rippled out into the world as it has, um, okay. I think that might be the easiest way to go. Okay, let's let's do that. Um, I guess the source is basically um, my parents were immigrants from World War II, and uh, my brothers and sisters and and my parents were displaced persons. They used to call them DPs way back then, and they actually came through uh, via Ellis Island. <laughs> so um, that whole wave of immigrants, right? And they landed in Chicago, and then, of course, then we were born. I have a twin sister. Um, and I grew up, and I didn't speak English till I was seven. But I knew, uh, looking at my parents, especially my mother, I knew something was wrong. And, in fact, I remember telling them that they were sick. And when I said they were sick, it was the trauma, the real trauma. And for most of my mother's life, she never told me, but she told others, that she survived a concentration camp. And, so are um, we talking? Are we talking Nazi concentration camp? Yes, it was, um, but in in the former Yugoslavia, and okay. um, the uh, SS, the Nazi SS, had a counterpart in um, in uh, Yugos- former Yugoslavia, and it was called um, Ustasha, and um, <clears throat> and also with the Catholic Church, and they set up concentration camps, extermination camps. The largest one was Yasnovac, and that's where my mother um, was, you know, uh, interned there. Um, was she with your father, or were they separated? Was he also in a concentration camp? 
Um, no, I don't think so. Um, see, this is where it gets very hazy. There's neither one of them really said much. Um, and it, it, it's the thing with Holocaust victims and genocide and and uh, what I call gynocide, uh, because it's mostly the women and children that are uh, massacred and murdered. But um, they tend to um, hold that silence, like you had said earlier in the broadcast about my book. It's about this silence that um, governments, um, institutions, media tends to hold, so that all we hear is, or all we see is really the victim role, especially for women. So that's very silencing for women. And um, so they didn't really talk about it. There was just like too much shame or... Um, and they knew that nobody really wanted to know about that. But the bottom line was is that um, I never knew what my mom did in the concentration camp to survive until later in life, and she died at 90 last year. Um, but I found out through um, my great-uncle Marco, who came down from Canada while my kids were right quite little, and I was so surprised I didn't even know I had an uncle that was alive, because most of my family uh, in Yugoslavia is pretty much gone now, especially after the Balkan War. But he came specifically down because he knew she wouldn't tell me anything. And he's the one that told me that my mother used to throw the babies into the oven. Oh, God. Yeah. No wonder. No wonder she couldn't talk about it. No. Um, um, (laughs) And she never really helped my babies either either when they were little. And I always thought that was... Go ahead. Well, I mean, you know, obviously she didn't, you know, she was forced to do it or that should have been thrown in the oven. You know, somebody was going to do it. Um, But, the, uh, you know, the guilt and the shame, misplaced though it would be, um, do you think that was part of her silence? Um, You know, she was in her teen years when that happened and the way she survived the concentration camp she would get a potato and um, that pretty much saved her life Um, but it was at the expense of these babies and um, she still continued to have this thing about not holding small children and you know I I thought it was me you know that um, there was something uh, about how I was parenting or mothering that wasn't right but I also had a feeling or intuition that there is something uh, behind all of this. And when I found out about it and I asked her about it, um, that was it. And that's when I had uh, a very long estrangement with my mom. Um, she just didn't want to, she just forbade anything to do with that. Um, and, you know, she was so upset that I got to meet her uncle, my great uncle, and that, um, <clears throat> that you know, finally that came out. Um in my book, I write about this, um, and, you know, I, I'll i read it from you in the book, and it goes, um, and this is my book, Blood and Honey. I remember thinking that I had some secret skill of motherhood for my infants because my mother's refusal to cradle the babies, or worse yet, that I was not cradled because I failed to measure up in my mother's eyes. But instead, I learned from my maternal uncle, Marco, that her hesitancy came from a lethal economic exchange. The capitalism and consumerism that is indoctrinated into everyone as being the democratic way. Mm. So So sad. 
It is, and it's basically genocide, the systematic, you know, destruction of women and mothers. I mean, right yeah. at the core of motherhood, right? So so what you're saying is when the women were taken to the concentration camp, maybe they arrived pregnant, who knows, maybe they were raped and they became pregnant after they were there, those babies were relegated to the ovens. Yes. Wow. Yasnabek was one of the worst concentration camps during World War II. Yeah, because we and don't I didn't hear about that was, one. Uh, you know that's that's um, not uh, yeah. uh, Dachau, and um, I can't think of the other one. But I, I'd never even heard of the one you mentioned. Yes, uh, you know it's so interesting too. Um, but it's in the in the annals of history books, and they do list them all out. Um, but former Yugoslavia, um, my mother, my parents, and I'm Serbian Orthodox, right? Although I don't claim any religion anymore, but. Um, so the Serbians uh, were also, um, during World War II, exterminated, almost up to 6% of the population, which is more uh, in terms of you know the whole population than it was for the Jewish population. And most people don't know that. So, um, so you're saying your mother went to, was sent to the concentration camp because she was Serbian, not Jewish? Oh, yeah. It was a lot of Serbians, uh, Muslims, Gypsies, and Jews. And I know homosexuals were were a group that that also got sent to the uh, prisons Mm -hmm. as well. Um, You know, kind of, you know, maybe a weird question, and forgive me if, um, uh, you know, if you hadn't thought about it or you hadn't heard it. Considering you're so close to this, um, you know, your your mother having fortunately, you know, survived a concentration camp. Did you hear um, uh, Ben Carter, the guy who's, you know, second, uh, you know, running number two in the Republican Party, saying that, um, you know, if, if the people had just bothered to rush the guards at the concentration camps, then they wouldn't have, uh, you know, they, they wouldn't have been led to their death. Um, I'm wondering if you heard that and if you had any thoughts. Um, see, that's exactly where I, I think the origin of my book and uh, and my work and my nonprofit, the Colo Women's Cross Cultural Collaboration. And when I saw that females um, experience trauma differently, and that female trauma is the target for most wars and what have you, so when he uh, said that. He puts the blame on the victim. Mm-hmm. And although he's never been in a concentration camp, he's never experienced any of that or even had that trauma. But he can actually stand outside of that and do the blame shame. Mm-hmm. So, you know, just think about a you know concentration camp survivor hearing upon that. They'll either take it on as I'm a failure. Yes, yeah. You know. I. You know. Uh, I'll give you one of the women in my book, uh, Fatima. She's one of the elders, and this was after um, <clears throat> the Amitra Vitez uh, war crimes thing was um, overturned by a Muslim witness who said that the war criminals weren't there, and it was a Muslim from a different area of the state, whatever, and um, was actually paid off to just testify that in the Yugoslav war crimes tribunal. And Fatima turned around and she said, now they have us killing ourselves. So that kind of statement by Carter was basically 
um, saying, hey, you know, we didn't kill you. You killed yourself because you didn't rush the guards. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's, yeah, it's and not to mention that, you know, the people who were led to the concentration camps, they didn't know they were going to their death. They thought they were, you know, going to be in an, uh, maybe in internment camps or uh, work camps and that they certainly weren't being led to ovens. And, you know, they didn't have guns or weapons either, you know. Um, anyway, it, I mean, it was just such a foolish thing for him to say. It uh, just shows the lack of depth I think um, well, it, it's not only depth, but it, it shows the perpetrator in him and how much control and dominance that occurs. That uh, by taking the most vulnerable situation or that victim, and then still smashing in more blame and shame, mm-hmm. um, but at the same time being able to control a large number of people, because there's a lot of people that really probably would agree with him, and yeah. that's where the complicit being very complicit with it. Right. So, right. You know, as I was growing up, it was a horrendous childhood. I'll have to tell you, it was just. But you know what? Um, I realized that I would have to do some work in violence, and I didn't know at that time. But I eventually got through, and I got my doctorate recently in clinical psychology with the concentration in somatics. Um, and the thing is, is that most of my study and research, however, um, wasn't this. Um, field of discipline that tended to be mostly male, male authors, male theorists, male, you know, whatever. And I found that when I started going into the field, you know, from Bosnia, Uganda, Sri Lanka, Haiti, and sub-Saharan Africa with the International Criminal Court, none of that worked. None of that worked. And so when I first went to um, Bosnia, I um, remember the first night I was there, and I realized I couldn't separate myself from everybody because I understood the language. And not only that, I understood the culture or the oral memory traditions. And um, I, I looked around me and I thought to myself, oh my goodness, every single person is so traumatized. I can't and this is years later. This is like a, a decade or two later, right? Well, it was in uh, March 1999. Okay. And and the war ended in '94, so that's six years so or so, not or five years. And um, okay. And economically, it was just, you know, and it still is. I don't know how they live, neat. But I looked around and I said, I, I will never come back. I mean, I've I've never experienced a hopelessness like that before, and I um, was going um, back to this you know, man's apartment that he gave me while he slept in the NGO that asked me to come down and help them. And I saw these women, and um, they they wanted to get to know me. And so uh, the next day I went there and I did, um, you know, a little um, kind of like seminar training and all these other things, and then I started to incorporate our Bosnian, our, you know, the Slavic things, such as this round dance, the kolo. And um, so someone had a cassette tape and a cassette player, and they put it on, and I outdanced them, okay? <laughs> <laughs> they were so upset that an American, and on top of that, a Serbian woman outdanced female Muslim women. <laughs> so now how did you learn the dance, though? Did, did you learn it from your mother? 
Um, well, I learned it from my brothers and sisters and mother when I was growing up in Chicago. They kept all those traditions, right? Okay. And, and I real I realized that when I used the colo with all these female Muslim war crime survivors and war survivors, um, and I was being Serbian and plus being American, and I wasn't here during the war, that um, somehow uh, there wasn't any kind of um, collective that I could, you know, be universal with them except as a woman, except as that my mother also survived a concentration camp. And um, I needed to coalesce that somehow. I needed to have an integration and a healing with that because of all the stories I was hearing even for that first day. So as I danced the colo, I had um, women come shoulder to shoulder with me, and we would dance. My feet would be much better at doing the dance, but theirs was fine, but that held the diversity, right? Mm-hmm. And so they never, ever referred to me as the American Serbian woman. I was one of them. <laughs> and then all it did was take one folk round dance. And wow. I, I just marveled at that. I, you know, all without words. You know, it was more therapy than that. So then yeah. the women started to tell me how they would take these, um, you know, military, uh, you know, the war veterans, so to speak, you know, that were so traumatized, PTSD, and they would always make them do the the dance with them. And you mean men? And I said, well, yeah, the colo, yeah. And um, yeah, okay. I said, well, why? Why would you do that? And they said, well, how do you feel tonight after doing this? And I looked at them and I thought, oh, my gosh, these are my professors. They're <laughs> healing their own community. And um, I couldn't believe it. I did believe it, and I thought, well, there's no psychology book that's going to hold all of that. Um, right. And I, but I realized that the Colo the Folk Dance and, you know, the oral memory traditions are very old. They're, like, beyond Mesolithic era. And there's a reason why our ancestors would do these kinds of rituals and practices. And and I'm discovering with more and more in my book and my research is that the neuroscience, the psychobiology, all of that is in these oral memory traditions, right? So and what actually happens, uh, Danica, when they do, I mean, what's happening in the psyche and in the body that the dances are so healing? Because I'm thinking about the dances of universal peace. I don't know if you've done those, but I have. And there's something about them that just blisses you out. And I wonder if there's anything similar. Um, well, yes. it's. I, I really believe that the circle dances and dances that are done collectively are not to make one unified. Unified is basically a very patriarchal um, and calculated um, response. Whereas the round dances is a matter of choice. There's a difference between choice and calculation. The patriarchy is all about calculation, which then gets you to conform. But with choice, it's consciousness. So it makes the body conscious. Therefore, the heart, the spirit, the neurology, all of that becomes more conscious. And um, there is this sense of when uh, we are together and you have so many different people together, and especially with the shoulder-to-shoulder in the torso, you have this big U section of our neurology. It's like these two big pipes, and one is the sympathetic and the parasympathetic 
you know, veins that come together. And that's basically what calms down trauma and everything else if you heal it right. So when you put somatic motion with that and touch with the other person, and then you've got music or you just are singing to what's going on, and you move together in solidarity, especially if you have female solidarity. That is the most key element in these round or sometimes they're serpentine or whatever, um, but they're all very biological movement as well. And it activates and triggers the body in a response that I identify with the collective, even if it's just for the space of the dance. Mm-hmm. And even if you can't dance and you're drumming or you're watching the dance, you are still part of the collective. Right. And that feeling blisses you out because then right, we remember right. we're all one family, right? Right. Right. And now these women were uh, uh, sur- uh had survived war crimes during the war between Bosnia and Croatia. Well, um well, yes. Well, former Yugoslavia had all these different provinces or, you know, uh or states we would call in the United States. So Croatia was one of them. Then you also had Bosnia, Herzegovina, you had Serbia, you had Macedonia, um, and, and, you know, you had these, um, and Slovenia. And so what happened is that they started to war with each other, especially the Croatians. But where I work um, is about a half hour from the 1984 Winter Olympic site. And Amica Vitez, and Travnik, and then there's another town right by Travnik called Novi Travnik or New Travnik, which was much more industrial. Um, the Amica uh, Vitez site was the one of the war crimes. And um, so the relatives and everybody else around that, you know, knew what had happened and it carried through the Travnik and uh, Novi Travnik towns. But this was done by the Croatians, the Croatian soldiers and what have you, because it's it's more eastern uh, part and Croatia's right there. Um, whereas in Sebrenica, and I've worked with the Sebrenica women, with these Amica Vitez and um, Novitopnik women, we would go to Sebrenica. That was more towards Serbia. And, okay. Um, so that, then that's where the Serbians came in and did most of the massacre of the Muslims there, and especially at Srebrenica. So, for listeners who don't remember, and I have to be honest, I I don't even know if I ever understood everything that was going on there. Was this a religious war? Was this um, some religion against the Muslims? Was it Christians against Muslims? Who 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 were fighting it out, and what was it about? Is is there a quick answer for that? I think it was a land grab, economic, um, and everybody puts it as a Christian against you know Muslims. Um, you could also say ethnicity um, and what have you. So. Um, and this is where the confusion really comes in because um, you come in there and you do like the date and accord agreement and you don't realize what it means to be a Bosnian or if you're Croatian or what have you. So if someone's Croatian, we know immediately that they're Catholic. And the word Croatian in Serbo-Croatian is Hrvati. 
Hiravati is an Iranian word, meaning they're descended from Iranians, and it means to braid. So you're braiding in with the Slavs. So um, Serbians are basically uh, Russians. Russians and Serbians are the same tribe. And we speak the same language, and except Russian is more formal, more complicated, uh, whereas Serbian is not as complicated. But with some work, you'll get to understand Russian, right? Um, so the Serbians was the predominant one. And then you had the Muslims who were, um, you know, uh, Slavs basically, but because of the 500-year rule of the Turkish um, Ottoman Empire, um, they adopted the Muslim religion. So you could see how sometimes it was ethnicity and sometimes it's just, you know, about the religion. But all of those were excuses um, to do a, a really big land grab um, after Tito died. And, um, and basically uh, with the Croatians and I guess even the Serbians wanted to take back parts of Bosnia. And, and then they also had revenge. Um, even my um, aunt uh, said to me when I saw her, in the 1970s, I, you know, I said, gee, you have all your sons in the army, you know, um, how come you don't have one as a priest? And she slapped me, and I said, what was that for? And she goes, we will never walk to the ovens again. Well, what did that so, mean? Well, I that meant that, that they will never go to a concentration camp again. And, but, but, um, but do you, but, oh, well, okay, but was it because you said, why isn't one a priest, or why are they all in the army? I, I, I'm trying to connect the dots. I, You know, I guess I was insulting her, and I'm not sure because, you know, she was so upset with me. And, um, and then her answer kind of shook me. And uh, I think it's both because um, uh, she would rather have her, her boys in the army because then they could kill the Croatians. And, yeah, um, they could get revenge. The or... priest, yeah, and the priest wouldn't do as much damage, I guess. I don't yeah, know. Priest would I didn't really ask. Yeah, maybe what? the priest is more passive, you know, and, um, yeah, maybe she didn't feel like that would serve them very well. Um, yeah, and well, that... you know, I remember when uh, some of that was going on, um, some of the things that were sort of leaking out and I was catching – uh, was here was a modern day genocide. You know, the the invading army, whichever one it would be, they would come into an area, they would, um, uh, you know, just you know try to destroy the culture. They would, you know, rape the women so that the next baby born to these women would be of their tribe rather than the woman's people. And isn't that how we ended up finally? Um, it was because of this war that. Uh, I think it was Hillary Clinton and people in the State Department maybe got rape um, uh, deemed a weapon of war, yeah, but up until then nobody thought of it that way? Well, I think that's just utterly ridiculous. Um, part of that, I mean, for them to just think that finally, I mean, that we didn't have a war crime as rape. Um, so you could see the gynocide that occurs, and like even with my mother, that economic exchange of one potato and throwing babies in the oven, all of that is very biological. And, and the creator of um, culture are females. It's the mother. The mother also is the one that created language. 
and the mother is also the one that creates the oral memory traditions, all of which isn't about war and killing and throwing babies and potatoes in exchange for the oven. And the same thing with um, with what you were saying in, in that regard. And so we have to really look at um, how we deal with wars and policies and then with that war crimes that Hillary Clinton finally came in. And does it take, you know, a country that's in close to Europe that had over 3 million refugees flooding Europe that finally we make rape a war crime because they're white? Because I can tell you how many war crimes and rapes are happening in Africa because I work with the International Criminal Court. And what about Asia? And what about China and Japan? And, uh, you know, it's almost like they don't count. Or even we can go to to South America. Um, So when that came out, and I was, you know, I'm very grateful that they finally did have, you know, rape as, you know, as a war crime, finally. But I still mourned all those other women and all women of color that that wasn't even thought of. Right. Well, let me ask you, Danica, because, you know, I, you're the expert in this sort of stuff. Um, oh, the I idea don't know. These of, women of are the rape, uh, you know, rape as a weapon of war. I mean, is that something that is sort of accepted across the board like the Geneva Convention used to be? Um, I mean, do all countries see it that way now, or was that just sort of a blip on the screen and, um, you know, uh, we, maybe there's still a lot of work to do before, um, you know, anybody prosecutes it. Or, uh, I, I mean, you know, just naming rape a weapon of war, what use was that? I mean, were there going to be prosecutions that would follow? I, I guess I'm trying to understand what was the benefit of recognizing what rape as a weapon of war? Mm. I don't know because they really didn't have convictions on it, did they? And then, you know, I work heavily in the Congo DRC, and the rapes there, it's beyond epidemic. And, uh, you know, the International Criminal Court has only had two convictions to date, and none of that's them with a rape. That's pathetic. You know, so I, and it's, it's a war crime. Yeah. So, I mean, it's almost like it's just lip service, you know? Well, and that's that's the whole thing. Even in um, psychology, when I was treating trauma and what have you, none of it worked. And I realized that female trauma is different than male trauma, and that um, and that's usually the target in most of these wars. It's the target in policies. Um, it's target in rule of law. You know, where we either don't write it in, or it's to be accepted, or we're not going to prosecute, or we prosecute, but we never get a conviction. Um, uh, it could go on forever before they decide, you know, just like um, Hillary Clinton, um, I mean, or Bill Clinton and his administration with the Rwanda, you know, mass murder of mostly women and children in churches and stuff. You know, over a million were killed. And they were, right. you know, they were discussing what's the definition of genocide. Right. And I'm telling you, I think it's genocide. I think it's this, you know, women are of no worth and they're not of value and we're not going to take time on this and it's going to be hard to prove. You can even see rape here in the United States, um, um, you know, to prove that or even sexual, you know, assault or harassment. You have to have a witness. 
Let's yeah. talk domestic violence. Usually you have to be dead before you can even get, and even then you don't get a conviction. Yeah. Well, and I'm thinking about when Boko Haram grabbed those uh, those young girls, yeah. you know. I mean, you know, women are just something to be used for, uh, you know, to, re- to re- you know, relieve their their lust. You know they're 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 you know they're there for their pleasure. They're you know it's like they used to say you know women were just incubators for the male seed. Well you know they're also just you know something you know for men's pleasure and you know to some of these unevolved you know animal like men you know. Um, well, well you it, know, you, it's actually a matter of rape. You know um, the rape is um, more a matter of power power over. Um, yeah. <clears throat> So, like, when I worked with all the, I worked a lot in sexual abuse and and predators and um, pedophiles. So sometimes they would, uh, the court would assign me a case, and I'd always ask for the rap sheet. And I'd always know if I've got um, a power-based perpetrator. And it usually started out with peeping Tom, and then it went to burglary, and from burglary it went to rape, and after rape it went to homicide. So, yeah. um, and there are various types of things that it just goes into that. And what you have is this power-based rapist or a power-based right. perpetrator. And and you'll find that universally across the world or globally, and it's behind everything. But yeah. what is the most vulnerable place? It's going to be her womb, and her home is the tomb. And that's, you know, and they'll couch it in words like civilian casualties and or they'll, or civilian, you know, okay, collateral damage, or what have you. But we have to look at how wars are being fought. And in Bosnia, it was fought in the homes and their in their wombs. And the rape camps, um, over 64,000 people flooded into that city of Travnik. And the reason is, is there's only one road in, and it backs up to the mountain, Mount Vlasic and all that. And most of those 64,000, quite a few of them were the women from the rape camps, and they were women our age, Karen, you and I. And they were doctors and lawyers and they were teachers and professors and, you know, engineers. And they were of all ages. And like you said, the younger ones, they would try to impregnate and, you know, have it as their tribe. And um, it was really, really horrific. It was very organized. And these rape camps knew the menstrual cycle. So they knew everything about women um, and what to do the most damage to to the most vulnerable um, target. And there's really not any policies on this stuff. So, Danica, these women who ended up pregnant from these rape camps, did they end up keeping these babies? No. um, You know, I have yet to work with a child of the rape camps. And the thing is, is like I said, a lot of them were, you know, older women, medical doctors or whatever, and they would abort yeah, and yeah. Um, most of these women knew about how to do it, even if they weren't a doctor. But right. they were still had close ties to the oral memory traditions, the Slavic moist mother earth, and that kind of spirituality. What you know, they would call like, oh, that's just such peasant stuff. But that kind of peasant stuff all came to the forefront, which is why I worked with these women for 16 years, the Bosnian. Uh, Amicha Vitez, war crime survivors, and uh, Novi Travnik, war survivors, because without money, without funding, without policies or anything, these women healed their communities. Yeah. The first, themselves and their families, and then the whole community. 
Wow. Well, that's that's pretty incredible. Um, and and I want to and and you think they did it through the colo, or there was more to it than the colo? Well, the colo is um uh, it it actually is a very old word, and I they think it comes even predates Sanskrit, but it, uh, the original meaning is the wheel or movement. So I think when you have a circle format, um, it it tends to um, really be a, a very involving. Um, kind of like quantum a- application, you know, um, that really triggers our biology and our psychobiology and our neurology to get into sync. Um, and there's a lot of healing that happens, you know, and it incorporates the whole body. It doesn't leave out the female biology at all. In fact, it, it centers into the female biology. So I think that um, the circle family is there. Uh, the one thing that I did do in some of the research with, you know, the colo dancing is there's this one dance that is actually about love. And so I had put chalk on their bottoms of their feet, and they were dancing on this paper, and they were doing the dance, and then I look it up, and it actually was in the same um, pattern as the 40-year movement of Venus in the sky. <laughs> <laughs> and there was a couple other dances that... Yeah, and they have a couple of dances, how they dance it, and they kind of crisscross. Um, that was the movement of the sun through the seasons. Mm, wow. Uh, and so I think there's a lot more um, semiotics, or what I call biosemiotics, um, you know, the reading of signs and stuff, that is really laced into a lot of these movements and also all these rituals from, you know, the tea ceremonies in Japan to their way they cook coffee and tea here in Bosnia and how they collect the herbs and all that. Um, there's, It's much more intricate. I mean, what is very simple is actually quite complex. But the thing, the key thing here, it is moist Mother Earth. It's, you know, Baba Yaga, which translated as basically Mother Nature. And mm-hmm. uh, when, when you ever have not nature involved in that, um, all those rituals from our ancestors um, – Offer up a you know a medical psychology uh, pharmaceutical you know um, resource you know it's unbelievable by some of these movements and you know science is actually finally catching up and starting to prove this out but these women and the book I write about with them is um, about that and what I did was I I um, did the chapters according to the archetypes. Um, of the stories were told, and um, and the one chapter three is the one is about uh, maternal fright, and I, you know I think we really need to look at that. Uh, I just submitted another paper on maternal fright and um, female human rights, and I think the way we can prevent a lot of this war and destruction towards and violence towards women is is if we look at how do we eradicate maternal fright. Now, what do you mean by maternal fright? Um, we know now in a lot of research that if the woman has any kind of fright in her pregnancy, the baby has a greater chance of, you know, attention deficit, mental uh. childhood mental illness, and physical. That is proven. And because the adrenaline, the cortisol that curses through the body of the mother is, of course, going to go through the, um, through the fetus. And the fetus in the development of this brain um it is very critical. So if she doesn't have fright, you have a pretty healthy baby, and the genetic material is pretty good and everything else. And so 
Um, with women that survive wars and trauma, they have a lot of fright. And when I go back to, let's just say, Novi Travnik or even in Amicha, I would go there and I watch these children. Well, in the war was decades ago, right? But these children act very depressed. Uh, you ask them to draw pictures, and it's about the war and killing, and yet they never even lived through the war. Right, right. Um, well, you know, you and, remind so you me of um, you know, Celeste Yarnell is a, a friend of mine who actually talks about this. You know, um, it, she doesn't use the word mother fright, uh, but she talked about how we could change the world in a few generations if mothers, while they were pregnant, got the right love, care, and support because then they would be birthing undamaged um, yes. babies. Exactly. The perinatal stuff and the fetal psychology and the research I've been looking at, I mean, I don't even think it'll take a couple of generations. We we could do it right now. So we'd have to ask every woman, whether they're going to have a child or not, do you feel safe? And if they don't, we have to make it safe for them. What is that going to take? (laughs) <laughs> well, when you when you think Republicans don't even want to pay for food stamps, <laughs> you know they don't even care if people have food to eat. I can just imagine uh, trying to yeah. squeeze money out of Congress for something like this. Well, I would call that a war crime if they did things like that. Yeah. Do you see yeah. what I'm saying? So if we really yeah. look at restructuring the policy and everything, which is one thing why I wrote the book and their and their their narratives. Because once you read it, and even that chapter three, I hope that people will have this discussion like how we, you and I are right now. Because it, that's bottom line. Maternal fight will wipe that out. Because if she, right. if your mom's not frightened, my kids aren't going to be frightened. Yeah. Yeah, and, and we just keep perpetuating that cycle. Um, so so your, so your book, uh, Danica, is it... A collect. I mean, I, I, you make me think in a way of Eve Ensler's of uh, the vagina monologues, how they were stories of women whose, you know, vaginas were basically violated. The, your book is stories of women who uh, have, you know, who who were uh, have gone through these wars. Um, so it's their it's their narratives, their stories, correct? Yes, and. Um, uh, well, I guess it is. It's just, you know, various stories that I've worked with for 16 years. And I um, I had to put them in archetypes and um, because it was just so deep. Um, like, for instance, um, I have the um, one story of one of the Amicha women, the grandmother, whose um, grandchild was baked in her oven. And uh, during the war crimes, yeah. And so the oven is their lifeline, you know. Um, it's called a pech um, in Serbo-Croatian. And um, she cooks to it this day in there. And um, it was, you know, I don't know of a single book I know in psychology that could help me deal with that. Right. And I, and I had to work with her. And... Um, I'm going to combine a couple of different stories so that way you won't know uh, the real name of this woman. But um, I would have to go out in Amicha and work with them in the field or with their cows, and then I could start talking with them because they, you know, they worked the land, and that's all they had, especially in the aftermath of war. 
So when I worked with um, this grandmother and stuff, I, I was just so tired that we went by this kind of like a stream or, you know, it was kind of just really moist and it was clay and I was playing with it. And so she did too. And um, she came in the house and I looked at She made this tiny figure and it was of uh, like a, an infant swaddled, you know. And it was very tiny, about the size of your little finger. And I had left. And then when I came back, um, I, I heard that she told me she baked it in the oven and it exploded. And you know what she did? She pieced it all together. Mm. And um, and she started cooking back in her oven. And she still has that little um, clay piece up there. And, wow. Um, by the, by the stove. So it was her way of, like, repairing and putting together through clay. And clay is really about the flesh and that the women can actually give birth or what have you. So these stories are about how these women did have the rituals. They did have this memory of our ancestors, so to speak, to deal with the unspeakable, the yeah. most horrific, and um, actually end up healing themselves and um, and mourning and not, you know, uh, being angry or looking at... Because none of these women, no matter how horrific the war crimes, ever spoke of hatred or that they hated the Croatians or anything. Not once. Wow. <clears throat> well, I mean, you know, the Jews had their day in court, I think, with Nuremberg. Um, did these did these people ever, um, you know, have their day in court, so to speak? Well, that's what I'm saying. They overturned it. Um, they had this Muslim that I guess was paid off that came in and testified saying that these uh, three war criminals weren't there and um, he was from a total different region He there, and he wasn't even there at the time of the war crimes. It was April 16th, 1993. And um, <laughs> so then the court overturned it so there was no charges against the three war criminals who came back and had a party and they lived right across the street from them. So you have the Catholic side right across the street from Amicha Vitez where all the um, massacre occurred. Wow. That's incredible. I I mean, I'm, I'm still trying to wrap my mind around how traumatizing it would be to have did you say, I think you said this woman's grandchild baked in her oven. I mean, that's what... Did I hear you right? That's right. I mean, I I, I, I kept saying, you know, I I wasn't even sure if I heard you right. I mean, it was such a horrendous, inconceivable thing to uh, even imagine. And, and, you know, the stories in this book, um, you know, I have one one chapter called Stories, uh, Storied Aprons. That's just also... Um, the thing is, is even though it's about the unspeakable, um, my book takes you to a place where you start to see how, no matter how unspeakable and horrific, how women heal and create life again. Mm-hmm. And, and that um, we need to unleash this force because our world needs it. It's a world of violence. And right. um, I, I learned a lot from these women. I'm very good at what I do, and it's because of these professors. I call them my professors. Or There's a female tacit knowledge, and let me describe that. Um, it's a knowing that we know more than what we can tell. 
and it's probably the memories in our, in, you know, in our DNA. Um, it's all those things that um, we have really forgotten to surge forward, and that we could bring them out, especially when needed. And um, and I think it's gotten to the point though that we're always doing it out of trauma, out of fear, um, always survival. But there was a long period of time in our history, especially with the goddess civilization and stuff, where we didn't need to survive. We always were thriving. And that's where we really evolved. Even our genetics evolved with that. And if we can get to the point where we can unleash these women um, and really learn from them and especially resurrect our female tacit knowledge, um, uh, we would everything would be rectified and maternal fright would no longer be a, con- a medical condition as it is right now and with trauma. We would be wow. able to uh, evolve. But you know what that's going to take? Love, reverence, honor, and respect to all things feminine. Yeah, most definitely. Mm-hmm. Wow. Um, so, Danica, is the book available yet or... Um, yes, it's on Amazon. It's on Amazon. I also have a hardback one. Um, we just, I just finished the Dallas. I was at uh, Southern Methodist University with the Umbre Human Rights Program, and I brought in um, Afghan women and um, the two Bosnian women leaders, and also Wahoo Carrera. She's the 2005 Nobel Peace Prize nominee on my colo board. And uh, we presented all of this and, and my book, Blood and Honey, and um, it was outstanding, the response I got, um, just really outstanding. I, I was well, it, very happy that we finally did that. Well, it sounds incredible. Uh, I mean, it really does. Uh, I, I mean, I, I can't I can't actually uh, wait to read it. I'm going to have to uh, get, a, get a copy. I mean, it sounds so incredibly powerful. So, so Blood and Honey, uh, Secret History... Of um, uh, of women, South Slavic women's experiences in a world of modern day territorial warfare. Uh, Danica, uh, do you, is there a website uh, people can go to uh, to find out more about you or more about the book, uh, rather than just sending them to Amazon? Or <laughs> I know I hate to use Amazon. Um, and in fact, if they come to my website and um, they can actually um, email me and I can send them at a much cheaper rate, the books, because eventually once the cost of the book is done, it's all going to these women. So it's really a good cause. But okay. my website is, um, of course, www. And uh, the word colo collaboration is one.org, but colo spelled K-O-L-O, the word collaboration, dot org. And if you put my name, Danica, D-A-N-I-C-A at colocollaboration.org. You'd have my email and you can request either a hardback or a paperback. Um, If not, it is on Amazon. It's in Kindle. And, um, yeah, the more books I sell, the more I'll be able to um, get the proceeds back to these women. Um, We're going to be doing some continuing projects that are going there, too. Okay. And uh, just uh, one last quick thing, because uh, I see Patrick is on the switchboard. Uh, the colo dances that you mentioned that were so powerful and so healing, are they on YouTube or anywhere else like that where people could actually uh, maybe see them? 
Yes, I have a five-minute documentary on my website, um, and there is a colo dance and music that you'll be able to see that being done with the very women I write about in my book. And okay. um, you can also see that also like on YouTube. And uh, we just recently did in Dallas at the uh, Dallas uh, Female Muslim Association, we danced for them too. And that's on Facebook. <laughs> and that had a um, couple of thousand hits. I was really surprised. <laughs> but, um, Wonderful. Wonderful. Uh, yeah, I think people are really interested in what movement can do and how that's going to be the best therapy when we're together as a collective dancing. <laughs> well, and it's 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 cheaper it's cheaper than a two hundred dollar an hour psychotherapist too. <laughs> yeah, you know? much better for you too. Much better. Absolutely. Well, uh, Danica, so. thank you so very much uh, for uh, you know spending the last hour with me uh, telling telling the stories of these one, women who have endured, you know, your mother and all of these women, Serbian women. Um, it's a pretty incredible story. And like you said, I don't think, um, I don't know, it, it, it doesn't feel like to me their stories got out very much. You know, it feels like to me it was sort of swept beneath the rug. I mean, just like with Iraq, uh, you know, the women who got displaced and ended up in, uh, you know, other countries and maybe, uh, you know, now to feed their family, they're forced into prostitution. I mean, or the right. babies who were born with birth defects because of all of the, uh, you know, the chemicals and everything that, uh, you know, they had to endure during the war. I mean, we don't hear about this sort of stuff. Um, you know, that's just not what the mainstream media tells us. And uh, that's a crime in itself, really. Yes, well, Ami Chavita, um, only until this last year, I think they do have a documentary, but um, there has been nothing on it. I'm the only person that's written about it and worked with them. So okay. it's really been the forgotten war crimes. Okay, so Blood and Honey, Secret History uh, of Women, and uh, the title's a little bit longer, but you'll be able to find it right. by uh, by that. Right. Well, thank you again, Danica. and. Thank you. Um, uh, best of luck uh, with the book, and uh, thank you for your work in the world. And you too. I really, I just think your work is so important, Karen. You're just an amazing woman. Well, you know, we're all doing our little part. What can I say? But yes. thank you. Yes. I, I appreciate all that. Right. All right. Well, okay. I'll say good night. And um, I know you're. Uh, you know, if you want to hear uh, Patrick and I talk about the Parliament. Uh, you know, please, uh, you know, catch us from the archives because uh, I know you. I, I know you have to I run. Will. Okay. Right. Good night. Thank you. All right. Good. good. All right. Bye bye. Well, our next guest is uh, on the switchboard, and uh, our venerable Reverend uh, Patrick McCullum. I, let me just refresh your memory, dear listeners, about uh, who he is and what we're going to be chatting about tonight. And uh, so, Patrick McCullum, he is an internationally recognized spiritual leader who's worked toward human rights, social justice, and equality for all religions and spiritual traditions, uh, transcends cultural, religious, and political barriers. Uh, he received the Mahatma Gandhi Award in uh, 2010. He was also named as a World Inner Peace <coughs> Ambassador by Thai Buddhists. Reverend McCollum served as an advisor for the United States Commission on Civil Rights and serves as Development Director for the UN uh, NGO uh, Children of the Earth. 
Uh, he serves as the Minority Faith Issues Chair for the American Correctional Chaplains Association and as founder and co-chair of the National Correctional Chaplaincy Director Association. Uh, he founded the Patrick McCollum Foundation, a nonprofit organization promoting a sacred planetary vision that respects religious diversity and advances progress toward e- equality, human rights, equality for women, and world peace. In 2012, he performed an opening blessing for uh, 100 million attendees, yes, 100 million attendees at the world's largest spiritual gathering, the Maha Kumbh Mela, I'm probably murdering that, uh, in uh, Allahabad, India. Uh, The Venerable Reverend McCullum was recently recognized as a saint in India and other countries and speaks worldwide on creating a new narrative for all humanity, one that everyone can live by. And tonight we're going to be talking about uh, his work. Uh, some new developments. He comes on the show periodically, and I'm so glad he does to give us updates, to give us hope, to give us inspiration. Uh, Tonight we'll talk about the Parliament. We'll talk about his work with his new project with Jane Goodall. But, uh, you know, he wants to update us on the the world peace violin. So, Patrick, welcome, welcome, welcome to the show. Well, thank you so much for inviting me, and... uh... Boy, that's all hard to listen to, isn't it? <laughs> introduction. <laughs> I'm like, <clears throat> I, you know, I, I, I know it's 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 hard to hear your bio read. I mean, I I kind of grimace the same way when you know people you know read the titles of my books and things, and <laughs> it's it kind of makes you feel like, well, gee, you know, you're tooting your own horn, but you know, people got to know you've you've accomplished great stuff. So, you know, well, deal I've with done it. a great deal, but. <laughs> But as an opening thing, I'd just like to say that, that when I come home from some big event where I've done something like that, um, my wife and I have this wonderful relationship, and she says, Your Excellency, now that you're home, could you please take the trash out? <laughs> so, <laughs> it keeps you humble. keeps you humble. Somebody's, and look, after somebody uh, recognizing you as a saint, somebody's got to keep you humble. So uh, exactly. kudos for Barbara. <laughs> Yeah, and, um, and I don't even know what that all that means, but um, I would say that I am dedicated through my connection to um, the Divine Mother, to the Goddess, that um, I am doing a lot of work around the world in different ways and, and trying my best, you know, to show up. Yeah. Uh, well, and, and I'm glad you said that because that's important for listeners to know, especially if they're new to the show. You know, you are a goddess advocate. You know, you told the story a long time ago about you were near death and it was the goddess who appeared to you. Uh, it, it was such a moving, uh, incredible story. And, uh, so, you know, you are a pagan. You know, there aren't many pagans out there in the world that can uh, say they are doing the caliber of work uh, that you're doing. And um, you know, I mean, you um, you represent us well. So um, you know, uh, I, I'm glad you're getting these opportunities. And uh, you know, because uh, you know, some people don't understand who pagans are. And I think uh, uh, you know, you definitely show the best of us. You know, so um, well, so where do you so want to start? Like do you want to start about? with? Um, uh, well, do you want to start about with the violin or the parliament sure, or? Sure. That's a good place to start. Um, so I think I'd, I'd, I'd begin by just giving a little breakdown of what the violin is, because I know Please. some of the people who are listening probably don't quite understand. Right. Uh, 
a number of years ago, I was just lying in bed, and out of nowhere, a voice, the voice of the Divine Mother, or who I call the lady, but I'm talking about the goddess, spoke to me in a very, um, you know, auditory way, not just like a dream or a vision. And she said, Patrick, I want you to make a violin, and it's going to become the symbol of world peace. That's what she said to me. And quite frankly, because I'm not a violin maker or an instrument maker and would have no idea how to do that, um, I, I, I didn't even really think a lot about it. I mean, I was kind of thinking it was just a crazy thing to hear a voice say to me, and I had no idea where that was actually going to lead. But what ended up happening is I do a lot of work around the world um, here in the United States and other countries uh, to try to people help people with issues around human rights, social justice, women's rights, things like that. And so I had helped resolve a conflict in Africa, in the Congo, uh, years ago. And the particular tribes who were involved were, were poor, generally, and so they wanted to give me something for helping stop this conflict. So they gifted me with a piece of wood. And it's a piece of wood that only grows in that area of the world, and it's used to make, make sacred drums with for like a thousand years. And so I brought that piece of wood uh, home and didn't think too much about that. And then a couple of years later, I helped the Native Americans fight against our own United States government to keep them from bulldozing sacred land here in California. And they gifted me with a piece of wood from a tree in the forest here in California that they said carried the voice of peace. So I started getting these messages, well, here I've got these pieces of wood. Maybe I should try making a violin out of these things. And so I began the process of just, uh, you know, drawing some shapes, doing some different things, and listening to the voice of the Divine Mother. Uh, I, I didn't get books or read how to make a violin or anything at all. I mean, literally just made it straight from listening to her and nothing else. And over time, I collected fragments from various uh, conflicts always conflicts that had been resolved or at least turned into something much better than they were. Um, and I ended up making the violin out of about 100 fragments from all over the world, from all different uh, cultures, from different religions, gifted by men, gifted by women, uh, gifted by people in the shamans in the top of the Himalayas and the jungles of Thailand, all places where I uh, was involved and interacted so I crafted this violin, still just listening to that voice telling me that I had to make it, and it would become a symbol of world peace. And quite frankly, between you and I, with all of my connection with the goddess and everything, I, I didn't really believe that that would happen, but I still was making the violin. And so when I finalized the violin, I made a varnish for it out of the dust, dust of the vaporized people in buildings from Hiroshima. Uh, my grandfather was uh, in charge of going into Hiroshima for the United States government eight days after they dropped the bomb, and he collected the dust. And then I mixed that with some things relating to the peace uh, treaty uh, ending World War II. And then I went to Amman, Jordan, and I helped facilitate 
conversations towards peace, peace negotiations between Israel and Palestine. And while I was there, uh, I was taken to the baptism site of Jesus. So I got some sand from where he was supposed to have stood while he was baptized and brought that back and ground it up with the ashes from, uh, um, you know, from Hiroshima. And then the Native Americans of Canada gifted me with ashes of the white buffalo, which was a buffalo born in a prophecy about peace amongst those Native uh, peoples there, the indigenous peoples there. And I mixed it all together, and that's what I made the varnish out of. When the violin was finished, everyone said it couldn't possibly sound any good. I had no idea what I was doing. You know, I'm not a violin maker, and it's all the wrong wood, and it's all the wrong parts. But for me, it was a matter of bringing together diversity, differences in cultures, differences in places, different ideals, different peoples from all over the world, and believing that if we could all come together as one, that it could create something beautiful. So now you took all of these pieces of wood and you actually, (coughs) excuse me, you glued them together in the shape of a violin. Yes, I glued them all together, you know, carved them, sanded them, everything, and made a violin. And and just like in the peace process, everyone said that this, this will fail. It it isn't going to work. You know, it's not possible. You can't take these diverse ways of being and peoples and everything like that and bring them together and have peace and beauty. But I believe that you could. So I got the violin done, and when it was finished, I I was trying to teach myself to play the violin. I've never had any lessons or anything, but in order to know whether or not the violin could play i was trying to learn just how to make sounds on it initially and when i played it it sounded horrible just like everybody said it was a beautiful piece of you know of craftsmanship i i made something that really looked beautiful looked like a violin and really pretty different woods than you'd ever see before and things like that but but the violin itself literally sounded horrible and just like everybody predicted. So I hung it on the wall and thought it'd be a great artwork, kind of. And then this thing about the goddess saying to me that she wanted me to make a violin and it would become the symbol of world peace just kept nagging at me. So I decided that in the peace process, we always set it aside. You know, we try, we fail, we quit. We set it aside, but then eventually we pick it up again and try again. So I took the violin off the wall and I took it with me to India when I did this incredibly giant event called the Mahakumbha Mela. And you did get it right. Um, Thank you. This was a spiritual gathering of 100 million people who actually physically came. This isn't on the Internet. This was so many people that it was uh, the whole thing was all monitored by NASA from outer space. Um, because it was the largest movement of human beings and physical weight on the planet all moving to one place. And in fact, the area that we were in was a large river valley shelf, and it began to tip from the actual ground for miles. It began to actually tip from the weight of people. But anyway, in the midst of all that, the idea was there's the most sacred place on the Ganges River is where three rivers representing three um, Hindu goddesses converge. And so there's the Ganga, 
or Ganges, the Saraswati, and the Yamuna River, and those are three sacred goddesses. And they come together at a place called the Sangam. And I did a blessing at the Sangam with 100 million people there. And I hadn't heard the voice of the goddess for a long time in the process of making this violin. And all of a sudden, while I was there doing this blessing, she said to me, immerse the violin in the river. Mm. So I spoke to some of the gurus and his holinesses and, you know, her holinesses and all that. And they all said I'd be crazy to put this violin in the river. It looked really nice and it would completely ruin it. But I stuck it in the river while 100 million people were praying for a peaceful world. And when I took it out, it stayed wet for probably a month. And then when it dried out, it got a voice that is beyond this world. (laughs) Beyond this world. And I could go on with the long story of how it's now traveled all around the world and received blessings from people all over the world uh, toward peace. But I think the thing that's most important to share is that last month uh, at the United Nations in New York, on the celebration of the 70th anniversary of the United Nations and on the International Day of Peace, Jane Goodall and Yo-Yo Ma, as the official messengers of peace for the United Nations, blessed the violin and named it the symbol of peace for the world. For the wow. UN. Wow. So here we go. We went, you know, from laying in bed listening to the goddess saying, make this violin and it's going to be the symbol of world peace to it actually now is the symbol of world peace. And didn't you say they uh, they made a documentary about it? Is that something we'll be yes. able to see soon? Yes. There's, well, there are several, there are many things happening with the violin. So one is there was a documentary made about the violin. It's, a, it's really kind of a short video. It's just, the, it's about a song that an Academy Award winning composer saw the violin and heard it one time and decided he had to write uh, a whole song and stuff about the violin. So he wrote a, a piece for the violin and then a documentary was created around that with the violin and the song coming together. Uh, currently in the works there's a much larger um uh, uh, proposal out to do a real documentary. I mean, you know, like what you'd watch on HBO or something like that. Right, about the right. Violin. And that is still in process. Um, there have been so many articles, newspaper things, TV show appearances, radio appearances about the World Peace Violin. Uh, it's become famous across the entire world. Uh, if people would like to know more about it in more depth, the story, uh, you can either go to uh, my website, which is patrickmccollum.org, um, and that's m-c-c-o-l-l-u-m.org, patrickmccollum.org, or you can just input World Peace Violin on any one of the search engines that comes right up, and there's a much more detailed information about the violin and, and such. And besides seeing it, will you be able to hear it play? Yes, there are uh, some videos and some YouTubes and different things like that with it playing also. Um, One of the unique parts, well, there are so many unique parts of the journey of this violin, it's beyond the ability to tell it in the time that we have. But one of the unique parts of the violin that was really moving is now I have this world peace violin, but 
no, um, you know, no real way to play it because I'm not a violin player. And, of course, the first thing everybody who sees it wants to know is it's a sacred violin, but what does it sound like? You know, can somebody play it? And out of kind of out of nowhere, a friend said there was a lady who was interested in seeing the violin, and so I took it and and showed it to her, and she asked if if she asked me if she could play it, and I asked her if she she knew how to play the violin, and she said, well, yeah, she did, and uh, she she said, I I after seeing the violin but not hearing it, she said I would like to devote my life to this violin. Wow. to the idea of peace and to the to the goddess. And I said, well, do you really know how to play? You know, and she said, yes, I do. And I said, well, you know, like, what have you done? And she said, well, I was Bob Dylan's primary uh, partner in instrumentals in all of his most famous albums, and I was named by the New York Times as the foremost female instrumentalist in the world. That Her sounds name good. Scarlett <laughs> Rivera. Very famous violinist, and so Scarlett is now the uh, the ambassador of uh, peace for the Patrick McCollum Foundation, and she travels the world with me and plays the violin. We played for the opening for the World Summit for the Nobel Peace Prize. Uh, we've played for Parliament of the World's Religions. You know, I mean, there, there's just been one event after another around the world where the violin's been featured, and she's the primary person who's played it. Um, wow. There and, have been and several I'm so others. sorry to, to say I didn't, I didn't know you were playing it at the Parliament, and I missed it. Damn. Yeah, <laughs> and so, I mean, you know, it's just, it's, it's constantly traveling all the time. The key component of the violin, which people are really beginning to understand, is, is that it is amazing that this violin has come together as a metaphor for peace because it incorporates all of the components that would be necessary for peace. You know, for us to acknowledge the sacredness of the divine in the different ways that we see it, and at the same time to recognize the sacredness of diversity. You know, well, and, and don't you think also there's something about um, uh, the the fact that this seemed so impossible on so many levels, but yet it still happened. So that, you know, that's almost a lesson in itself that, you know, they tell us, oh, you know, there's always been war. There can never be peace. Well, you know, maybe they're wrong. Well, I want to tell you the last bit of the story. I mean, there are, you know, having Jane Goodall and Yo-Yo Ma bless the violin at the United Nations was about as high as this journey has gone. But um, but there was an event just prior to that that was the most profound part of the journey for me. And that is that, now picture this, I have this peace file and I'm taking it around the world and the idea of it is it's almost like a storage battery. People bless it all over the world. I, I've had lepers on the street, common people, kings, queens, prime ministers, presidents, famous people, unknown people, homeless people. They all want to bless it for peace. People want peace. And so I take the violin, and everybody handles it, and they, they do that. Well, I had played the violin at a thing in India, not the one that I was speaking about, but a totally different event that was invited to in India. 
And a large number of the top men and women, women gurus and yoga masters of the world were there, and they simultaneously joined together and said that the sound the violin made was the exact vibration of Om, the original sound made by the Great Mother when she brought about creation. Mm. And so they just came together for it to be that. So uh, a year later, which was last year, um, the uh, the United Nations created World Yoga Day that was voted on by 180-something countries to be the first time that yoga would be recognized worldwide for its contributions to peace and tranquility and all these kind of things. And when that that event happened in major cities all across 180-something countries, but uh, there was a special dispensation given to Portugal because a guru in Portugal was the one who originally got the idea to create uh, World Yoga Day. And that guru and all the gurus from around the world invited me to be the honored guest to to use the violin to create the very first sound to launch the International Day of Yoga for mm-hmm. the world from now on going forward. So, wow. so I flew to Portugal and the violin played it and it opened <coughs> that event. And then all of a sudden I was in Lisbon, Portugal, and I'd never been there before. And they all asked me, now that you're here, what would you like to do? You're here for a couple of days. And they said I could go see, you know, various different things. And one of the things they mentioned was that there was the miracle of Fatima where the Divine Mother was uh, said to have appeared and the Catholic Church has decided, you know, the, the Virgin Mary and other people have different ideas. But anyway, it was, you know, a Divine Mother appeared to millions of people mm-hmm. in the sky there. And so I decided I'd go there and that I'd take the peace violin and I hiked to where she was appeared. There's like an olive tree where she appeared. And um, I went there and there was only just a few people. And I held the violin, violin up in the sky where she appeared at standing at this tree. And I said, Great Mother, bless this violin for peace in the world. And I choose peace in the world. That's what I said. I don't know why I said that. And then I reached up and I broke off a piece of the olive branch to include in the violin, which is now included. And right at that moment, a group came up and they shared that at that moment, to the day, to the hour, where I was standing is where she appeared 100 years ago to the day and to the hour. (laughs) And I was standing on the spot with the violin, and then there's a stone there with a carving, and it talks about what the the goddess, divine mother, Mary, whoever she was, said. And she made a series of prophecies, and amongst the prophecies, one of the last ones she says is that there can be peace in the world, but it will require someone standing on this spot 100 years from today and choosing peace or war. <laughs> so how is that for crazy? <laughs> and we've got it all on video and stuff, so I mean, there's no question that it actually happened at the exact moment and everything else. But I didn't even know that it was the 100-year anniversary or anything about it at all. I mean, it just randomly yeah, it went there and ended up standing <clears throat> on that spot. And so now that 
piece of olive branch is incorporated inside the violin so that her voice is, you know, intensified. So that's the story of the violin, and that's where things are now. And wow. each time it's played, it as new people bless it, its sound gets better and changes. And now some of the foremost violin um, makers, uh, luthiers in the world, really foremost ones, say now that it's in the class with like a lower level Stradivarius. It's, it's, wow. It has become something so far beyond anything I could ever imagine. There's no way to explain it except it's the miracle. You know, Patrick, um, you know, I believe these things happen. I really do. I, uh, it, it annoys me sometimes when, you know, uh, people say, uh, you know, being spiritual or being religious uh, uh, is anti-intellectual, you know, because <laughs> I, I think you're a smart person and I don't think I'm a dumb person. And, uh, you know, I, I think that's kind of dumb, you know, <laughs> uh, yeah. you know, to sort of relegate people like this as, as anti-intellectuals. But, uh, I mean, I believe in these miracles. I believe they really can happen. You know, they don't happen every day, uh, but but they do happen in the world. And I can't even imagine um, what this, you know, having the responsibility for this violin, uh, it must be, um, uh, you know, sort of this dichotomy between an incredible burden and an incredible gift. Does it not, do you lay in bed at night and feel scared to death sometimes? Yes, you know. I mean, to uh, to start with, um, you know, uh, understand that I I began with just some fragments of wood, and all of a sudden, <clears throat> there are uh, articles and museums wanting it and things like that, and and it's it's being now spoken of as being maybe, you know, one of the couple most famous violins in the whole world in all history, and and so when you think about that, and you realize that I. I am nobody to be doing anything like that. So it's 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 not even really from. Yes, I made it, but I I don't know where that came from. Um, I think it really makes you believe in magic or prayer or whatever you want to call right. it, and that there is something else going on besides just what we think. <clears throat> well, you but, know what it makes me think of. I, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. No. Well, I say, but the frightening part of it is, is that you know now I'm carrying around this priceless, irreplaceable thing that everybody in the world wants to see and is traveling to all different countries and I'm I'm having to protect it and, you know, make sure it doesn't break in half or fall off my back when I'm climbing the Himalayas or doing all these things like that. And um it's 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 a heavy burden, a tremendous yeah. burden to carry it and to be responsible for it and to worry about it. You know, well, you know, I think of it more as, um, you know, having heard the whole story. I mean, even if, I mean, the story just gets better and better, but even before this latest part of it, um, <clears throat> you know, it feels like to me it's more a sacred relic. And, yeah. um, and, 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 you're, and, you know, and, and you're being humble about it. Uh, but, you know, you said, well, who am I that she would appear to me? It reminds me of the story of uh, Our Lady of Guadalupe and the peasant boy, you know, shows up on the hill and, uh, you know, and, and it's his tilma that, you know, has the image of the, of, of, of Guadalupe, um, yeah. you know, on it. And, uh, uh, you know, I, I mean, it, it, people will be writing about you <laughs> like this, you know, I mean, they already are, but... Um, 
you know, I, I think this story is is um, gonna it, it's gonna live way beyond you um, <clears throat> is is what I think, and I just wonder where the violin. I mean, where where will it go next? What part will it play next? Um, I mean, do you do you have any idea, or you're just sort of waiting for the next guidance? Well, I just wait for the next thing. I've been uh, contacted by people uh, representing the Ayatollah of Iran, asking me to bring it there, to play it, to uh, you know, connect and commemorate the the uh, deal between the United States and Iran. Whether you believe in it or like it or not or whatever, it's still an amazing thing that. Uh, understand this. I'm a pagan, and I worship the goddess. And right. Everybody knows that, and yet people from every religion and every culture and everything want me to come, and they want me to share this story, and they want to see the violin, hear it, touch it, and bless it. And well, so, you know, maybe um, there's something to that. You know, I mean, we think that people look at pagans, and, <clears throat> I mean, we know the word even, um, you know, is, is derogatory in a sense. But... You know, maybe in a way, the fact that somebody from a marginalized religion, I mean, in in current days, um, maybe you're the perfect carrier, creator, because you're not part of one of the big three Abrahamic religions, you know? Well, and I do think that plays a part in it. Um, I I wanted to go back to something you said that is a thing that I always try to share because I feel it's so important in this story and that is is that even i trying to be humble about it have to recognize or acknowledge that that somehow my part in this is going to live past me and the violin will live past me because already i have museums and things you know asking about it and and it's it's just become something too big and the story is growing all the time but here's the real truth I am a very ordinary, everyday, regular person. I mean, when I'm not speaking to 100 million people, I actually am cutting and splitting my own firewood to keep my house warm. Mm-hmm. You know, and th- I work on my own car. You know, it's not... Yeah, it, it, yeah. I'm, I'm not Superman. I'm not the big grand poobah or anything. I'm just an ordinary person. And right. the true message in all this for me that I would share people beyond the message of the violin and stuff is this, that the only thing that has created this circumstance is that I opened myself up to listen to the voice of the divine, in my case, the feminine divine. I opened up my heart and my spirit and believe in her, and when she spoke to me, I just followed that. And that is something that every ordinary, everyday, regular person can do. Anyone who's listening to this can simply open and connect in that way, and miracles and incredible things happen. And and I'm living proof that that, that is the case. And so I think it's it's important for us to remember that we all have that within us. You right. know, it isn't just me. I made a violin, or I am chosen something <clears throat> or other, because we're all chosen in our different ways. Yeah. And um, it's a matter, but it but it is a matter of quest, a question of showing up. Yeah. 
Well, and that's for somebody who might say, how how do you make the connection, Patrick? How do you how do you tune in? Do you, is there a trick to it, or is it just your intention? Well, you know, for me, I had I had a, a, a special experience, a near death experience, when I was fifteen, and and I don't want to go into that too much, but people could read my book or they could look it up online and it says, you know, about that experience. But but I think it's just simply I get up every morning. There is no one else around. So it isn't like I'm not doing this for somebody. I'm not trying to create a show or something. I get up every morning. I have a little altar and I have a little few little depictions of the goddess for me. And I get up every morning and I say, I'm here, standing here. I want to serve you. I want a better world. When I step out, help me to take every step that would be the step you would want me to take. And 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 I do very, very simple, simple little, you know, meditation, prayer, whatever you want to call it. And that is how I start every single day. And every night when I go to sleep, the last thing I do is thank her for being present in my life and allowing me to serve. And I think that that's all any of us really need to do. You know, right. you just you just need to 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 choose to stand in that space. Right, exactly. <clears throat> Is there a particular goddess that you um that that uh represents uh the great she for you? Yes. So I I am a priest of Bridget. And and you know I grew up Irish, and really it's not that that comes from that so much. It really had more to do um, with that. Uh, a lot of my a lot of my practices really bumped up a lot when I went to Ireland the first time, and then I learned that she, in addition to many different attributes, is kind of a patron goddess of musicians and artists and law and justice and all these kind of things and and they all fell in line with what it is I wanted to do in the world and Mm -hmm. so you know here we've got an artistic creative instrument that works on the vibration of sound or music connected to law and justice and you know creating a better planet so it's kind of like all those attributes came together absolutely for me, I mean, so I would tell somebody, yes, that's the the manifestation of the divine that I see. But because I've been around so much and met with so many people who see her in so many different ways, um, I, in my common language, I just like to say the divine feminine, you know, uh, in the sense that, you know, I, I believe she can manifest any way she wishes. Mm-hmm. And... For me, she's manifested in this particular form because it's something that I feel comfortable with and that I can interact and work with. Right. Um, but so that's who I'm dedicated to, and um, you now there are components relating to my work and things that have to do with that. Makes sense. Yeah. Well, we we have probably about uh, 15 minutes left. Um, did okay. you want to uh, talk more about Jane Goodall, or did you want to talk yeah. about the Parliament? So. One of the things that my work in the world is to create world peace. That's that's my primary interest in the world is how do we come to peace in the world and planetary sustainability. How do we learn to sustain our planet, including nature and the animals and everything else? I see all of creation as sacred, 
and that each of us are like pieces of a puzzle carrying a fragment or a special uh, piece of the divine uh, within us and that we're all unique. And so I, I stress the idea that instead of us all trying to become one, that instead we recognize the sacredness of our diversity and and we become try to become all individually a piece of the puzzle. Mm-hmm. So with that said, um, I'm always working towards trying to find ways towards creating a more peaceful world, more sustainable world. So uh, I made a connection with Jane Goodall, who's a very famous climatologist and animal rights person and everything, and most people know her. But um, anyway, I have a, a long connection with her. And she and I were talking, and she was expressing to me that she's very concerned about a lot of the new policies around the world relating to forests and animals and stuff, that, you know, giving more rights to exploit nature and to kill other sentient beings and these kinds of things, um, primarily animal partners and such. And she was saying that she felt she was at a point where she felt powerless to do anywhere near as much about that as she would like to. So here's the foremost person in the whole world doing that work, saying they feel inadequate to really address the the level of destruction that's taking place on our planet. And um, so she asked me, she said, you know, if you can come up with an idea or something that you think could advance things farther than I've gotten, you know, let me know and I would be on your team. So I created a an idea, a concept of uh, changing, protecting the environment, protecting the animals, and working towards acknowledging the sacredness of every human being. And I decided I wanted to take it on the road and that I would begin in India because it's a country that I go to often, and it's one of the largest countries in the world with the largest population. And right now they're in a lot of turmoil because um, they have a new prime minister who is saying, let's take India and make it one of the foremost countries in the whole world. There are a lot of good things happening, but one of the things that's been being thrown around in the news and such is that the prime minister of India and some of the other people who are leaders are saying, you know, now that we're trying to catch up with everybody, we've got to economically catch up. And so forget about the environment, forget about animals, forget about people. Let's chop the trees down and sell them as quick as we can. Let's shoot, mm-hmm. you know, the elephants that <clears throat> are left. We can sell their ivory. You know, let's hunt tigers. People will pay tons of money for a tiger right. whisker or things like this. And uh, nobody seems to be able to do anything about curbing that. So it just so happens that I met. Prime Minister Modi, the uh, the now Prime Minister of India, a number of years ago before he was Prime Minister. And I have a connection there. And then what's happened is my work with the peace violin and being made a saint and all these different things have come together to where his people have expressed that they feel a meeting between he and I would be something worth doing. Yeah. And I devised two plans that I wanted to do something to change with him. 
my first part of the plan is is that I want him to raise the status of three quarters of a billion women in India. I, I have a whole series of things that I would like him to take steps on to raise the status of women and 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 raise equality for women. And the other thing is dealing with the environment, these these new environmental laws and stuff that he primarily is in charge of. Understand that this one single individual, if he chose to do so, could change policies and rights that would literally raise three-quarters of a billion women overnight. And but Patrick, Patrick, yes. why, why would, why, you know, it, with so much riding on it, with so much pressure, I'm sure he would get in our capitalist society. Mm-hmm. Um, why do you think he would listen to you? Well, the first thing you have to do is figure out why in the world he'd ever even meet with me. I mean, I'm just somebody, you know, from somewhere else. Yeah. Also, I will tell you that when I played the violin at the opening for International Day of Yoga, it turns out that the the his holiness that that invited me for that position happens to be the spiritual mentor for the Prime Minister of India. Okay. And I have now been invited to start trying to put together an idea to have a concert with the World Peace Violin for the Prime Minister. And it turns out that his best friend, who's another person who I've also done interactive with and everything, is his childhood best friend and has spoken with him. And there's coming together the process of me having a full-day meeting with him. So it's so almost it's, as if things are coalescing. Exactly. So it's it's, <clears throat> it's just coming together. It is going to happen. I'm going to meet with him. The question is, is when I sit in a room with him and I express to him why he should change some of the things he wants to do, um, will he or will he not? And so I decided that, it, and this is where the part with Jane Goodall and everything comes in, and I'm and I'm aware we're at the end of our time, so I'm trying to talk a little faster. Um, I thought to myself, well, if I walk in the room with that guy, and he really does have the power to change things, and I really did make a good argument as to why he did, what would give him the confidence that I really was a person who had the capability and the support necessary to make the changes and the experience that would be, you know, would still raise India up and at the same time create good laws and policies? around these issues. And so I decided that I would do magic, if you want, and that I would just bring together the foremost people in the whole world and that I would create a project and ask them to join me on my team and be with me so that when I went to the prime minister that I could say, these people are on my team and that they will help. And so I uh, took the idea to Jane Goodall and she said she would love to be on the team with me. And then I approached Vindana Shiva, who is one of the foremost environmentalists in the world. And she said she'd like to be on the team with me. And then I approached uh, a His Holiness uh, Swam- Puja Swami Chidanand Saraswati, who is head of the largest ashram in India and really connected the, the spiritual leaders all across India. And he said... And he also has the largest environmental project in the world called the um, Ganga Action Paravar. Um, And he said he would love to join with me as a partner. 
and then I went to um, His Holiness, and these are all hard for people to remember. You could look it up just online. But anyway, I went to His Holiness um, Jagat Guru uh, Maharaj from Portugal, who again has millions of people who follow and has other connections. And they all have joined my team at the Parliament. We created a coalition between us, and I am creating the framework for the meeting with the Prime Minister, and they're all on my team. And so, so they'll, all, they'll all meet him with you? Well, probably I will only meet him myself. But okay. I will be able to say, this is my team, and they will right. all back that up, and that they will be willing to do all the things necessary to support my ideas uh, towards changing the future of India in this particular regard. And, and my real hope is, is if India were to step up and change its policies, I mean, India is a con- country with a great number of problems, and many of the problems that face them are, you know, like a, a microcosm of the problems of all the rest of the world. Right. And, and I say microcosm, it's really a macrocosm because they're much bigger than most other countries in the world. Right. But if India, as far back as it is, behind everyone else was able to take these steps and move forward, they would stand as a model for the rest of the world. The rest of the world would have to follow suit or be just embarrassed, you know, that that a country like India was accomplishing these things when we can't. Right. And so that's part of my whole strategy. And uh, as of a couple of days ago, everyone came together, made commitments to join with me, and so I now have a uh, an international coalition representing billions of people, and some of the foremost uh, activists and and such in the entire world in these areas. And we're going to go to town. Well, that's a formidable team, and <clears throat> I hope there's a way you can let um, all of your supporters uh, know when you're going, if that's if unless it's confidential, so that we can be praying for you. And um, you know, sending good energy for a successful meeting. I will be doing all those things. It's obviously there's a lot of strategy involved. I mean, even sharing on the radio right now that this is a strategy is challenging. You know, because part of the idea is to be able to 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 not have everybody already ready to respond to whatever you're going to say or do. You know, it's more about allowing the spirit to move in. But here's the bottom line for me. You know, I may be crazy, it may may sound really stupid, but the goddess has shown up for me in every single major event like this for the last 50 years that I've been involved in. You know, I've changed the whole prison systems. I've now changed the United States military. I've advised presidents and things. And, And I'm just an ordinary guy. I have every confidence in the world that if I get in a room sitting with the Prime Minister of India and I choose to try to share with him he needs to move in a certain direction, that she will show up and that will happen. Well, I mean, we have the miracle of the violin, um, you know, I mean, as uh, as evidence that she, you know, if she wants this, this will happen, I think. I mean, it's really sort of the bottom line, don't you think? Yes, and I mean, you heard it here first. <laughs> I, I think I got on this show years ago and talked about that I was making the violin, you know, and I mean, yeah. no one ever would have imagined that it had come 
to where it did. I was telling people, you know, years ago at like uh, little events and things, this I'm making this violin and it's going to become the symbol of world peace. And people are kind of going like, yeah, you know, that Patrick is a little crazy. You know, <laughs> what the heck is he doing? But now looking back, there is nobody who could contradict that exactly what was supposed to happen happened. Right. And it's the same place I am in relationship to this stuff with working on helping with the environment. And um, it isn't only the meeting with the Prime Minister in India and going to India that we're doing. We're doing multiple different projects in multiple different countries. But that's one of the focus areas. And I think that in, in closing, I just want to think one last thing, and that is, is that just think about this. I am just a person who believes in the goddess stepping forward, trying to keep doing whatever she guides me toward. And I have brought together people that other people at the highest level can't even talk to as an entire team to join with me. Not me joining with them, but them joining with me. Mm Mm-hmm to do this. I think that in itself is a miracle. And um well, and you know, so so it just gives me great confidence that this will come to be. That it's it's coming it's pieces are falling into place. Right. Well and I should remind listeners that you don't get paid for any of this. You know, you have to no, find the money long. to to go to these places and appear. It's not like somebody sending you a private jet. Um, if anybody wants to contribute to help you facilitate all of this good work, um, I, I would assume you accept donations at your not-for-profit? Yes. So we're a, a, we're a United Nations NGO, non-governmental organization, and you can make donations. Um, you can both designate them for a particular project or for our general fund, and you just go to patrickmccollum.org, that's P-A-T-R-I-C-K-M-C-C-O-L-L-U-M.org, online, and there's a donate button, and you can use PayPal or other means. And, you know, this is one of those embarrassing kind of points that I don't like to bring up often, but I'm just going to share it for whatever listeners you have. It's nothing I would put on any brochure. But all of the work, that I have done around the entire world, meeting with presidents of countries, doing talks between Israel, Palestine, everything like that, I have done primarily paying for it with my Social Security. I don't even have a job. I, I And I don't have very much money coming in for Social Security. But I just get on a plane, take all the money I have, and fly someplace where they ask me, and I just speak, and I, and, you know... I somehow am still here and manage to survive each day and 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 do that. But we really do need help. I mean, I am tackling projects that the largest NGOs and stuff in the whole world aren't able to address, and I'm getting traction. Um, and and one other thing I just say about the Patrick McCollum Foundation, so people have an understanding how it works. As small as we are in the larger group, we were the first responders to the earthquake in Nepal, for example. I remember. We were there like three or four days before anybody else, and we saved hundreds and hundreds of lives on a very small amount of money of people just donating. So, you know, donate a dollar, donate ten bucks. I mean, you know, whatever it is that you can do 
That's yeah, a lot of people donating a lot uh, ends up to be a lot. Uh, I, yeah. I mean, I'm sorry, a lot of people donating a little turns into a lot. Um, exactly. Yeah. And every penny counts, and we have no one in my foundation gets paid. There are no, you know, fancy cars or airplanes or anything like that. 100% of all the funds that come in just go out into projects that we're doing, and every project that we're doing, people who go online are all directed towards creating a world that we can all live in. And well, um, so we could use the help. Well, incredible work, Patrick. Um, thank you for the update. And um, in in three minutes, do you think you could um, give us a, a wrap of uh, the Parliament? <laughs> sure. So, you know, the Parliament of the World's Religion is such an amazing coming together because around the world, as most people know, a great part of our human difficulty is related to religion. You, know, you could go back and say that the whole reason that we rape the earth and do all these things is because there are certain religious ideologies that say that this is just a place we're waiting, you know, to go to the real place that matters. Right. And that everything here is expendable. And so something like the Parliament brings people from many different spiritual and religious traditions together to talk about the reality of what our own spiritualities are doing to the world and to us and allow us to have great discussions and reconcile those differences. And so at this Parliament, you know, I met people from probably 35 or 40 different religious and spiritual paths and had incredible connections and coming together besides the meetings that i brought about with jane goodall and these other people at the parliament itself there were many other meetings going on in many other places between leaders and street people and you know seekers who will change the future of our planet and so the parliament now they're saying you know it's going to try to be like every five years and i would think it would be one of the greatest uh, opportunities for everybody that listens to the show or anyone connected to the sacred to go and and speak your truth yeah. share you know your connection with the goddess or with whatever it is that you find yourself connected to and make connections and friends because it isn't until the web of us all coming together all be recognizing our interconnectedness, it isn't until we all weave that together that we will have peace on Earth and a planet that will be sustainable that we can call home. And the Parliament offers that opportunity. Well, you know, for me it was a real shot in the arm, you know, because uh, if you look at TV and try to keep up with what's going on in the world, it's hard to not... uh, you know, be inundated with the ugly and the hateful and the hopelessness. And uh, I came home uh, feeling uh, rejuvenated and nourished and hopeful again. Um, So I was so glad to be there. And uh, it it was just incredible. You know, I I wrap it up in four, four words, amazing, inspirational, overwhelming, exhausting. (laughs) Yeah. And like everyone else that goes to the Parliament with all the big stuff I'm talking about and the peace violin and the Jane Goodall and everything, I hit the ground, conked out, can hardly even walk or move. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so so uh, part of participating in these kind of things is being human, you know. Yeah. 
uh, coming home, trying to rejuvenate and start again. There you go. Well, Patrick, I'm so glad uh, you reached out to me to tell me there was new news. Uh, And I appreciate the fact that you're sharing it with listeners. And uh, uh, I'm so glad I made it to the Parliament. And, uh, you know, thank you for, uh, if if you helped in that, uh, you know, in any way, uh, because it uh, it was life-changing for me. And uh, it's really started to uh, shift my thinking uh, tremendously. And it, it just feels so good to know that there so many other like-minded people out there and um you know religion doesn't have to be a thing that divides us uh i mean we we could certainly see that at the parliament so yeah and it's it's the hope for the world because as spiritual leaders and as spiritual follower followers we have tremendous power uh you know to to either do good or bad and much of the spirituality and religious practices have somehow done less than their best but yeah. we are we are those people and so we can make a difference and the parliament opens that opportunity and your show opens the opportunity for people to hear about things like what I'm doing and others and um, I'm always honored to be able to be on your show and to share what's going on with me and my work and at the same time, to acknowledge all the other amazing people who are doing similar things. Yeah, you know, we're all in this together. Yep, yep. We all we all got a little piece of it. You know, we're all yep. doing our thing. So, well, thank you, Patrick. As always, the door is always open. Um, you know, call me, get in touch with me anytime. Uh, there's some new news. And uh, thank you for uh, your work in the world. Uh, I mean, you're obviously doing incredible stuff. So, thank you for all of us. Thank you. Have a wonderful night. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Well, dear listeners, in the last two minutes, uh, I'll tell you a little bit about uh, the Parliament from my perspective. Um, I moderated a panel called uh, The Living Goddess, and then I gave a talk on reawakening our earliest sacred stories. And uh, I'm so happy to say they were well attended. In fact, I had a gentleman come up to me uh, after he attended both and said, you know what? My wife and I have been practicing Buddhists, he said, but I have to tell you, uh, this goddess thing, I really think this is for me. Uh, I, I think we're going to go home pagans. So anyway, that uh, it, it was a lot of fun. It was incredible. Um, I, I can't wait to go to the next one, and uh, anyone can go. Uh, so if anyone out there is interested in the Parliament of World Religions, just Google it. You don't have to be invited to go. You have to be invited to give a talk or moderate a panel, but anyone can go. So thank you, dear listeners. Um, I love you all out there. You are the gas in my tank. You keep me going. And uh, thanks to all of you. Thanks to all the musicians who dedicate their music to the show. Thanks to all the guests uh, who share their wisdom. So for the next 60 seconds till we go off the air, I'll let you hear a little bit more from Abigail Spinner McBride, Arms of the Mother. Evil, mama, my